Hello, and welcome to this session on dual moral obligations and international cooperation against global catastrophic risk by Jenny Xiao. I'm Nigel Chu, and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with a 15-minute talk by Jenny, then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where Jenny will respond to some of your questions. Now, just a quick introduction to our speaker for this session. Jenny Xiao is a PhD student in international relations at Columbia University. Here's Jenny. Hi, my name is Jenny Xiao, and I'm a PhD student in international relations at Columbia University. I'm also a fellow at the Weatherhead East Asian Institute, as well as a former summer fellow at the Future Humanity Institute at Oxford. My main research interests include international cooperation, China's foreign relations, as well as how emerging technologies affect international politics. So the topic of my talk today is dual moral obligations and international cooperation. Whether it is dealing with climate change, securing artificial intelligence, preventing nuclear war, or dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, we need the collaboration of different nations to solve the greatest challenges facing humanity today. Yet international cooperation is often very difficult. And in, very often the parochial interests of nation states stand in the way of greater collaboration. In the words of a 19th century British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, nations have no permanent friends or allies. They only have permanent interests. And many theories of international relations cite national self-interest as a reason to be pessimistic about international cooperation. So realism, a theory that's very much focused on security and national interest, goes as far as to argue that if there is a common good, it's a mere byproduct of states fighting in their own interests. Realists care not only about gaining from cooperation, but also about their relative gains, which means that they want to gain more economically and militarily than their counterparts. This makes realists very concerned about relative losses in a, in a cooperative endeavor. They're also very concerned about prisoners' dilemmas, about their partners cheating or defecting on them. So the gist of realism is that national self-interest will likely prevent long-lasting and genuine cooperation. Another theory of international relations, liberalism, um, is a slightly more optimistic about the prospects of cooperation. Liberals argue that states do cooperate for common interests, um, and that states care about absolute gains or creating win-win situations. Liberals believe that there are many mechanisms to foster long-term cooperation, such as tit-for-tat, issue linkage, and the shadow of the future. So issue linkage means um, if you, for example, like cheat on an arms control agreement, I will, you know, refuse to trade with you. And here, like trade and arms control are linked together. And the shadow of the future means that states might be deterred from cheating if um, they might be punished in the future. Liberals also believe in democratic peace, the idea that democracies don't fight each other and have an easier time cooperating. So an implication from liberalism is that long-lasting cooperation is possible despite national self-interest. And a final theory that I want to mention is constructivism, um, a theory that focuses on the social construction of national interests and as well as international relations. So constructivists argue that national interests are socially constructed rather than merely given. Um, a very prominent social constructivist, Alexander Wendt, argues that there are four sources of national interests, state survival, autonomy, economic welfare, as well as collective self-esteem. 
Well, while constructivists don't make direct predictions about international cooperation, their implication is that social constructs such as ideas, identities, and narratives shape national interests and affect the prospects for cooperation. So if everyone thinks like an altruist, international cooperation would be very easy. And if everyone thinks like a realist, it'll be very difficult. So after talking about how different theories of international relations view national self-interest and international cooperation, um, the elephant in the room is actually the fundamental assumption of state self-interest. And the question that I want to ask today is, are states entirely self-interested? If states are entirely self-interested, how do we explain foreign aid, which amounts to millions of dollars a year? I know like cynics might argue that, you know, foreign aid only amounts to 1% of the U.S. federal budget. But why bother with that 1% if you don't care about anyone outside of your borders? And how do you explain Hoover's decision to provide famine relief to Soviet Russia in the, 19, in the early 1920s? I mean, for a lot of Americans, Soviet Russia seemed like a great communist threat. The Bolshevik Revolution just um, just happened. The communists look very strong and their power is growing. So why bother helping a potential enemy? Using a more to use a more um, recent example, at the UN General Assembly in September, China pledged unilaterally to be carbon neutral by 2060. This came as a great surprise to many national leaders as well as climate scientists. From a pure national interest perspective, shouldn't China also like, you know, require the U.S. to do the same before committing itself to carbon neutrality? You know, you don't want the Americas to have a booming economy when you're paying for carbon reductions. Even in the realm of security decision making, it seems that national self-interest can explain everything. So after China joined the Korean War in, the 19, in 1950, the U.S. General Douglas MacArthur um, suggested to Harry Truman to use U.S. Uh, nuclear bombs against North Korea and China. But after using nuclear weapons against uh, Japan in the Second World War, Harry Truman became morally reluctant to use nuclear bombs again. And he rejected Mac MacArthur on the grounds that he's reluctant to kill innocent children. And such a decision was very costly for Harry Truman. And it was very costly to the U.S. as well. So the U.S. lost tremendous prestige at abroad. Um, the communists gained a lot of grounds in Northeast Asia. And Harry Truman was punished tremendously in, in domestic politics. So what explains such costly moral actions? To answer this question, I want you guys to cast out the idea of national self-interest for a second and bring in the concept of moral of the moral circle. So the moral circle is a concept that was popularized by philosopher Peter Singer in the early 1980s. Um, the moral circle or the circle of moral concern refers to the boundary in which moral values, rules, and considerations of fairness applies. And an implication of the moral circle is that Having a larger moral circle predicts more willingness to contribute to the greater good. So think for a moment how this connects to the theories of international relations that we've mentioned and how it connects to the idea of the national self-interest. The theories that are based on national self-interest assume that decision makers' uh, moral circle coincide with the national boundary. So they attach moral value to everyone who's within the national in-group, but not to those who are outside of the national group. So this is why leaders commonly cheat on international agreements, free ride on uh, international collaborative efforts, and fail to contribute to international global uh, to global public goods. 
But the question is, are national decision makers so narrowly nation-centric? Sharon Schwartz's research on basic human values finds that aside from the few remaining small, isolated, homogenous cultures, concern for the welfare of all people and for nature is likely to be recognized to some degree in virtually all others, which means that a concern for the greater good is present in many different cultures and, and peoples. Research on moral psychology also shows, um, a moral foundation theory also shows that liberals tend to have a broader moral circle than conservatives. So if we look at the heat maps down here, um, the heat indicates the highest moral values of liberals and conservatives. And items closer to the center are family and friends, and items like towards the outer rings are animals and um, all living things. Conservatives um, have centered their moral concern around items that are immediately related to them, such as their family and their friends, whereas liberals have a much broader moral circle. But while it's very tempting to focus on the differences between liberals and conservatives, I do want to emphasize that the concern for the greater good is present across ideological groups. So conservatives do attach some moral weight to items such as um, the animal or the environment. So all in all, the concern for the universal good is present across ideological groups. So if individuals care both about parochial interests and the greater good, how would we expect them to make decisions? So here I argue that rather than conceptualizing decision-making as a drive to maximize one's own self-interest, decision-making should really be thought of as a choice between one's dual moral obligations. So for any decision maker, they will care about the benefit to the parochial group, such as their nation state, um, as well as the benefit to a universal entity, such as the environment or all humanity. They care about the cost of their parochial group and attach different weights to parochial groups and universal entities. As we've seen on the last slide, liberals and conservatives differ somewhat in the ways that they attach to parochial groups and universal entities. States should choose to cooperate when to com uh, to, uh, and contribute to a common good when BP times BW, which is a BU. State decision makers should choose to cooperate and contribute to a common good when BP times WP, which is the benefit to the parochial group times the weight attached to the parochial group, plus BU times WU, which is the benefit and weights attached to um, the universal entity. Um, the combination of these two factors is larger than the cost to the parochial group. And if the, uh, if the opposite is, tr is true, um, states should choose to defect or free ride. So the implication here is that states don't defect or free ride just because they don't care about universal good or because the benefits of cooperation aren't high enough, but that the combination of different factors makes it very difficult for decision makers to choose cooperation. To illustrate this theory further with a concrete example, um, suppose a state is deciding whether to sign an international AI safety agreement. Decision makers will consider, first, what are the AI safety benefits to my country's citizens, military, and companies? Second, what are the benefits to, global AI, to the global AI landscape and humanity's welfare if I cooperate? Also, what are, how would the agreement negatively affect my country? How would it restrict my country's AI development? And how would it diminish my country's lead, if it would? 
And also, state decision makers will consider how much do I care about my country's interests as well as the greater good. If they will choose cooperation, if this disequilibrium holds true, and they'll choose to de facto non-cooperation, meaning not to sign the AI security agreement when the opposite is true. So what are the implications from this model? First, states are not single-minded in their pursuit of self-interest. But the idea that states might be self-interested leads to decision-makers systematically underestimating how much their counterparts care about the common good. Just think about the examples that I mentioned earlier. It's very difficult to convince American and European leaders that China really cares about the global environment. And in the 1920s, it was very difficult to convince Europeans that the U.S. president really cares about Russian peasants. But theories based on uh, self-interest and also self-interest-based worldviews tend to systematically underpredict voluntary cooperation. And a final point is that drawing from the idea that our moral circles are constantly expanding, the dynamics of international cooperation are also not static. Nations do not have permanent interests, or are they permanently self-interested? In fact, there are some reasons to be hopeful for the future. Both Peter Singer and Steven Pinker have alluded to the idea that the spread of reason favors a broader moral circle. Once people start reasoning about their moral circles, they'll ask questions like, what is the justifiable stopping place for my altruistic concern? And these questions propel the further expansion of their moral circles and account for a decline in violence in human society. In addition, the World Value Survey has found a general shift in, from survival values to self-expression values as countries and societies become wealthier. Traditional survival values prioritize physical and economic security, and the focus on security often leads to an ethnocentric and xenophobic mindset. On the other hand, self-expression values place more emphasis on issues such as environmentalism, tolerance for minorities, and animal rights. And if world economic growth continues, one should expect to see the spread of self-expression values across different cultures. Finally, a well-established theory in social psychology called contact theory finds that contact between different groups reduces bias and conflict between the social groups, with the growth in global travels, not, the, not at the moment, of course, but potentially in the near future, and the increased connections between individuals of diverse backgrounds, we could expect to see a general reduction in prejudice and hostility towards foreigners and a growing concern for the welfare of national outgroups and the environment. All of these changes will make international cooperation much easier. So that's the end of my presentation, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you for the talk, Jenny. I see we've had a number of questions submitted, so let's kick off with the first one. Jenny, in your opinion, how concretely can individuals contribute to international cooperation? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I think firstly, like individuals can try to do research in the field of international cooperation. Um, coming from an international relations uh, background, I can say for sure that international cooperation is under, it's under research. Um, it's not like a big big field international relations anymore, and especially in concrete fields of international cooperation, such as cooperation over AI security, over climate change, those fields are definitely like underexplored. Um, I think another field 
uh, that you might want to go into is, you know, becoming a China specialist. Um, I know I haven't mentioned China a lot in the talk, but um, China is going to be a really big player in the international cooperation field and providing global public goods. Um, and there's just not a, a, enough knowledge about China, especially in the West. Um, and I think becoming a China specialist, you know, doing a graduate course in, in China studies or international relations is like also a great a bridge to uh, like a, you know, making greater contributions in the field of international cooperation. Um, and finally, if you don't want to go into research yourself, it's always a great idea to donate or, you know, volunteer for organizations that work in the fields of international cooperation. Um, and I know like plenty of them are present at this conference. So do like try to get in touch with them when you're, when you're at this conference. Thank you so much. So just to follow up to that question, to what extent is knowledge or familiarity with Mandarin essential to becoming a China specialist? Um, I personally think like knowledge of Mandarin is very essential to becoming a China specialist or like just working generally in the fields of like East Asia, knowing the local language is very essential. Um, it's kind of like saying that, can I study American politics without knowing English? Um, and I think like a general like issue, a lot of like American re universities or like American research institutions have is that they lack or like Western uh, institutions in general is that they lack uh, linguistic expertise in China, which makes it very hard for them to conduct good in-depth research of China or like understand uh, the Chinese perspective. So language is important. You also mentioned in your talk that the, the conventional view that states are self-interested. Could you share, us, share with us a bit more on where this comes from and how do we overcome this conventional view? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, where does the conventional view that states are self-interested come from? I think first, um, it's not entirely wrong to say to say uh, states are self-interested, as I kind of like pointed out in my little disequilibrium. Um, leaders might give more weight to national self-interest, and they often do, and especially in like more traditional societies or like in, in history. Um, people tend to have more traditional survival values and they do tend to be more self-interested or more interested in the um, survival of their own groups rather than like ideals, universal ideals, you know, environmental protection. Um, so I think it's not entirely false to say that states are self-interested. Um, secondly, there are not a lot of memes in international relations, a lot of like, you know, um, ideas in international relations such as like Machiavelli's ideas or Carl Schmidt or you know these people like, really influence how people think about IR um, and I think thirdly uh, uh, economics definitely has a huge influence you know the rise of economics makes people believe in the rational uh, uh, the rational actors that are self-interested driven by profit I think these ideas have traveled to international relations and I think a final reason why people tend to think of international uh, players as self-interested is because it's hard for, for decision makers in one country or for people in one country to believe, um, to understand the perspectives of other countries. So as I mentioned, it's very hard for, you know, China to convince Europe or the U.S. that it has good intentions because Americans and Europeans don't know what the Chinese are thinking and vice versa. Um, so I guess that's another reason why it's hard, uh, why there is this conventional view that states are self-interested. It's interesting. I think there, there's a comment that came up in your talk as well on how it's interesting that realism is called 
realism <laughs> when it's actually just a hypothesis about how you know nations act that may or may not turn out to be real do you think this kind of reinforces the the conventional views what do you think this um could you share us a bit more about the context from, of where this comes from Yes, I think that's a very insightful comment. Um, and I think uh, it's a really great question as well. Um, I think the concept of realism actually comes from, uh, it, it has like very like deep historical roots, but uh, realism was modern realism is popularized between the first and the second world wars. Um, during the first, between the, in the interwar period, there was um, another school called the liberals or the idealists who believed that uh, the First World War was the war to end all wars and that international treaties, institutions can end war forever. Um, and the realists such as E.H. Carr um, basically rose up and said, hey, that's way too idealist. Um, you need to have a realistic view of, of the world. Wars are not gone forever. Um, so that's where the concept of modern realism comes from. But I do agree it's more of a hypothesis than like a concrete, you know, uh, causal mechanism. And I think realism or like realist concepts such as balance of power, such as every nation for itself, do uh, reinforce the idea that um, countries are self-interested. Another question that came up, do you think that the moral circle has become narrower in recent years? And does this pose a risk to international cooperation? Yes, I think I, I do agree that in recent years, the moral circle has um, become narrower, especially if you look at the U.S. There's the, or like Western Europe, there's been a rise in populism and populism. You know, one of the sources of populism is xenophobia. Um, one of the reasons why um, I think uh, uh, the moral circle has narrowed is because the economic crisis really strained uh, like people's economic well-being. So people have shifted from a more idealistic self-expression based values to a more security, you know, um, traditional values. Uh, so I think the moral circle has narrowed somewhat. And if you look at the, the COVID crisis, um, after it broke out, you see like a spike of racism in a lot of lots of countries, you see a lot of like, um, xenophobia, um, you see, you know, China first, US first, and you know, my country first. So if you are constantly under threat, if your economy is not doing well, if you're physically under threat, you tend to turn to um, more security oriented values and have a smaller moral circle. Thank you. Another interesting question that came up. Would you try to value or quantify the synergies from international cooperation to justify further research of funding this space? And if so, how would you approach it? Hmm, I think that's a tough question. Um, how do I justify like more funding for, for us international relations scholars? Um, I think international relations works in, uh, across many different fields. Um, I know a bunch of like researchers who do like AI security research or, you know, climate change research, and they come up with like great, you know, great solutions to the problems that we're facing today, such as AI alignment problems or, you know, climate change. But oftentimes, like international politics stand in the way of their great solutions. So if you have like a great solution for AI alignment, it might not happen because there is a, you know, a tech cold war going on between the U.S. and China. So I think like international relations is sort of like um, it, it connects all these subjects and makes it possible for your wonderful ideas to Know, to come true. So I think like international relations or international cooperation is the enabler of a lot of these amazing ideas coming from these technical fields. 
I'm going to try and squeeze in one last question. Mm -hmm. So this is, what do you think social media with algorithms that select what we see, how, how, what do you think is how social media will affect cooperation among different groups and to what degree? Um, I think that's also a very tough question. I'll answer very briefly. I think social media, by forming these little media bubbles, narrows our moral circle because it fails to like let us connect with you know broader people, uh, broader circle of people. And as I, as I mentioned in the last point of my presentation, that contact between different social groups breaks down barriers, but oftentimes social media um, erects barriers rather than breaking them down. Great. Thanks so much, Jenny, and thanks everyone for watching.